Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the uh, you know the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Ian Walker. He's an executive director of New Democracy Foundation, NDF, in Australia. He's been doing that since 2011. And we're going to talk about his various works in uh, local and state government levels, um, different forms of governance, including possibly some sortition. So, Ian, thank you for coming. A pleasure, Richard. Yeah, tell me a bit about your background and how did you get involved with these kind of topics? It's a varied background. I started my career as a sports agent. I spent a little bit of time in technology, as everyone did around 2000. And uh, in that time, I got a little bored and did a master's in public policy. And I think my natural orientation is um, maybe a little more autocratic than democratic. You think, you know, I think I could make all the great, great decisions, as many people watching the news think. And I did this sub subject on Athenian democracy on citizens' assemblies. And I probably approached it fairly cynically. And then, you know, if you do a subject for 13 weeks, you start seeing when something is hard to break. Got interested from there and through a few little accidental cross paths, met Luca, who funds the New Democracy Foundation, and we got talking. And uh, that was the start of things for me. 
Yeah, I've heard a bit of, you know, several people talk about, uh, you know, ancient Athens. Can you talk about a little bit what they did? What are these citizen assemblies and what did you learn that was interesting? There's a great book by uh, David Van Raybrook called Against Elections. Uh, and David's an author. And though you may remember a few years ago, there was an election in Belgium, which didn't yield a result for 541 days. And being a historian, David chose to take, take a look at this. Now, the reason I start there is if I say to you, oh, where did democracy start? Most people will say, oh, Greece. And yet they didn't have elections in Greece. Elections are a very modern means by which to do democracy. Arguably not the best way. Uh, a lot of people think is democracy is voting. Democracy is elections. Elections are one way to do democracy. It's a different way of thinking. If you think of what is a democratic decision, it's when we're acting on the informed general will of the people. So there's many ways to achieve that. And um, in short, you know, when we look at Athenian democracy, what was really inspiring there, and of course, it was a different time with the rights of uh, women and issues of slavery, of course, but it was two and a half thousand years ago. Uh, I think most of our democracies didn't start by giving women the vote either. You judge something of its time. But what was insightful in Athens was that there was a broad equality of rich and poor having a say, and they achieved that through the use of random selection. Uh, they had a fabulous old stone machine for doing so, uh, but at the core of it, that was the genius idea. And I think to bring it up to the current day, there's a, you can pick up a newspaper every day that's talking about, you know, what's wrong with our democracy. Well, there's not a lot of people talking about what we do about it to fix it. And so our simple starting point is new democracy is let's not talk about all the problems. Let's look at what, where the solutions may lie. And uh, in the current day setting, uh, I think the wider public has a lot of trust for the criminal jury system. You know, it may occasionally make mistakes, but fundamentally, we don't see the influence of money. We don't see the influence of misinformation. We don't see jurors trying to maintain a media profile and build a career out of it. And so there's something to this idea of the jury system of this equality of opportunity to be a representative. And that's really what we're trying to capture and see where it can fit and make our political system better. Okay, what, I don't understand what that means. So in ancient Athens, were actual politicians <sighs> randomly chosen or were these uh, advisory boards to existing politicians? And well, how would that translate to today? Richard, it's more enjoyable than that. The idea of politicians would not really have occurred. It was an equality of if you turned up for a public decision and several hundred people turned up, you would simply face a situation where all but the military consul roles were selected by random selection, uh, a jury of people brought together. It really was, in many ways, that simple. So for what, the, the daily governance issues, would, would this jury be called in or was it only big, important issues? Like, what about the mundane topics versus the important ones? I think they actually covered a lot of the main mundane. I don't want to put myself out there as a professor of Athenian history, but it's more the core idea of, um, I think it's Aristotle who has the fabulous um, quote, selection by lot is democratic and selection by election is uh, oligarchic. Um, if you actually look in the Federalist Papers, one of the great arguments, and you know in the Federalist Papers they all wrote under pseudonyms, but it's believed to be Hamilton. And he wrote in that document, and you can search on the phrase natural aristocracy, but the founding, amongst that founding discourse of the United States was we cannot allow ourselves to become a democracy. We will use elections to preserve our natural aristocracy. And you should be taking a little bit of a hint there that um, 
perhaps this is not a way to really get a representative group of people together using elections. Juries are inherently fair, but it's probably easiest to grasp using like contemporary examples of, okay, so how would that work? How would it fit in? And um, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but you look at examples in, uh, especially in Ireland, as being an exemplar of how you can do democracy fundamentally differently. Oh, so what's a, yeah, what's a contemporary example? What does it look like? So the best single case study for this was uh, in Ireland, and um, I think you'll work with me that it's one of the more religious countries going around. There's a lot of affinity for the church. They had an abortion prohibition baked into the Constitution. So I understand the United States is going through a bit of back and forth with the court now. Imagine having the right to life embedded in your constitution. Now, a right-aligned government in Ireland recognised that they were having some problems in that uh, women were travelling to London for a procedure and, honestly, a number of them were dying on the way. So you had a government. Can you imagine wanting, as a politician, to attempt to reform abortion law in Ireland? I mean, when we speak to Australian politicians, they recognise that the degree of difficulty on that is through the roof. What did the government do? They'd actually convened a citizens' assembly of 100 people in Ireland picked at random. So you got people from all walks of life, rich and poor, blue-collar, white-collar, no-collar, just a rough match to the population. And essentially they asked them whether that part of the constitution needed to change. They gave them considerable time. And what was central is we're very used to public debates where advocates on either side really lead out with some fervent and often extreme examples. And politicians find it very tough to be stuck in the middle. Well, the citizens were free to simply apply their judgment. And critically, when you and I sit at home watching the news, see the see these people talking, we see people like us. We don't see the noisy advocate. We don't see the professional politician. We don't worry about the influence of money. What happened with that group was essentially that they identified three scenarios where they would like abortion, abortion to be prohibited. And it was six or seven scenarios where they were comfortable with it. Um, now, we know some of the people in the government who were extremely nervous through this process because what the citizens were coming at was very different to what any politician was proposing. The final referendum passed 67-33. And if you know a bit about referenda, nothing passes like that. You know, it's, it, it can be a struggle to get to 51%, let alone 67 And in exit polls, people consistently referenced the fact that a group of people like them had taken the time and that they trusted them. So I think the the almost the, the key takeaway is if you can reform abortion law in Ireland with a right to life protected in the constitution, there's probably other hard political issues around the world we can use by giving presidents and prime ministers the ability to call on a citizens assembly and use it and essentially to reset a debate, reset a discourse. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, I guess I um corruption gun shy. 
because I, I feel like I see corruption everywhere today. So like when you yeah. say, uh, you know, like people were selected randomly, what are some of the nuances of that selection? How does it work so that it doesn't get corrupted as well? Richard, if I could cheat the lottery, I wouldn't be talking to you. I would be buying an island somewhere. It, you can make a lottery as public as you like. Um, you could pick numbers, you know, using a televised system that comes up with three and four digit strings that you've got to have in your mobile number. Maybe it picks birthdays, but fundamentally we do have an ability to pick random numbers and to do so transparently. Uh, I'd also gently remind you of that, that fabulous uh, analogy of uh, the two of us needing to run away from a tiger. And, you know, there's always that question of, well, you're not going to outrun the tiger. I don't need to. I need to outrun you. When you look at the corruptibility of elections, which requires so much money to run, I think in, in recent presidential elections, I know that the Hillary Clinton topped $1.1 billion. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that the candidates in the last election certainly were very close around that number. I, I find it very hard to believe that all those people give money out of civic contribution and goodwill and are not expecting a little favour on the way back. The minute, the great advantage of random selection is you straight away take money out of the system. And I think that is the greater gain. Absolutely, a random selection could be cheated if you tried to do it in a black box somewhere, but there's plenty of ways to do it out in the open. So I don't think corruptibility is the problem as much as where you've got to be mindful is you're always reliant on people turning up. So you can get a moderate self-selection bias. Well, yeah, what are, I mean, has anyone studied this? What are the better ways to use the random process and you know, how do you make sure the people are turning up for some reason, the ones that turn up don't have some kind of, uh, I don't know, I don't know, the, a person that turns up versus not turns up, what's the difference? They're just more passionate or like, you know, has anyone explored this part of it? The picking, you know, the way to do it right versus wrong, you know, examples that seem to work better. What are some of the problems, that kind of stuff? Has anyone gone deep into that aspect? Yeah, I mean, there's there's hundreds of academics look at things like this to give you the sort of simple takeaway. Uh, the absolute core of it is things like print invitations and really explaining what the process involves on that invitation and giving people a long time to respond. Like we leave our RSVPs open for four weeks, you know, as a lead up into what would probably be a four month project. The more you give people time and explain it, what you're really trying to tap into is most of us, regardless of wealth or background or anything else, we want to have a say in the decisions that affect us. And so if you give people that opportunity, if you show them that respect, you get very high response rates. And in those high response rates, straight away, you dilute just having the most enraged and articulate at the table. And really, that's our problem in a lot of public decision making today. It massively appeals to the enraged, the articulate, and 95% of us sit there and scratch our heads and, and think it's all gone a little bit far. This is why it's such a good counterbalance and a complementary mechanism. Picture a leader you respect. Uh, standing up to take a tough decision. Now picture that with 30, 40, 50 people from all walks of life standing next to them saying, we've actually had a few months to look at this in detail. We made the following proposals. And on balance, we think it's a good decision for our community. We think that is going to be a more trusted decision. And the results show that we are getting much more trusted decisions. And citizens are actually capable of confronting hard trade-offs that politicians often don't want to confront. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, so is this, was this particular decision literally given over to the hands of the, um, 
the randomly selected people or did they just advise the politician who made the final decision anyway? Well, it was a referendum, so it went out to the whole population. The critical piece is when we say complementary, absolutely we have elected decision makers and they get to make a final call. What this does is expand the range of options available to them. So in the Irish case, a president was able to say, we're going to have a referendum, and in the event that it passes, those three scenarios that people don't consent to will not be part of the law, and the scenarios that people do see as reasonable that what the citizens have recommended will be the basis for the law. So it doesn't have to be full, complete authority. It's about a complementary balance, which is where we think there's a really big window to drive through. Oh, no, this is very interesting. What was the process when people, quote unquote, showed up? Was it they were given weeks of time at home to just consider this and send their vote in? Or did they come together in a room and, and hash it out and slug it out or whatever? So let me paint you a little picture. Uh, When you've been selected, you get a little bit of background information reading. Now, it's not homework, but it's a chance. If I think there's this wonderful phenomenon called called rational ignorance, where I'm one of uh, 17 million voters in Australia. Well, as a result, my incentives to read are not that great because I'm one 17 millionth of a say. Now, if you then say I've picked you as one of 50 or 100 people and the president will give you a response your incentive to read and think and engage on this has just gone up dramatically. So before we start, people get essentially reading book uh, background booklets uh, as a starting point, often 150, 200 pages. When they come into the room, now picture that we're probably running six days in person with each of those days spaced three weeks apart. You're coming in, you're meeting a whole bunch of people all different to you, and you're probably at tables of six, five and six. Small groups are a really good way to have a conversation. And you rotate those groups every couple of hours. So otherwise, we all naturally sit with people who look and think like ourselves. Now, in that, if you picture what six days looks like, you spend about half the time going to get people to consider a lot of sources and a lot of perspectives. And after that point, you're essentially synthesizing that now that you're in a more informed position, what is the recommendation that you'd make? We often think that our job is to look at the problem with our democracy is it's become excessively responsive to public opinion and what it needs to be is responsive to public judgment. Richard, if you and I get arrested at some point, we won't demand a phone poll of a 1,000 people, but we'd probably take a jury that looks at a contested array of evidence and tries to find a common ground position, and that's public judgment. I care a lot what you think in 40 hours. I don't care very much what you think in the next 10 seconds. The key pressure point within that process is ensuring that diversity of information sources. In essence, we trust people. We give them critical thinking exercises and we don't filter the information that they get. They're capable of working out that which is uh, well-grounded and that which is, uh, well, much less grounded. But the key is to give them control and let them give them the time to explore it and ask those questions, nominate those sources and get the answers back. There is a mistrust of experts and a problem with misinformation. This is the number one way to counter that. Are the people paid? And if so, how much? In Australia, we match it. It's it's not as good as working, but if you're young and you have to skip a shift or get childcare, so we pay on average about $200 a day. Oh, that's much better than uh, in jury duty, which pays you nothing and just expects you to take off work. So in Australia, you get paid for jury duty as well. So that's what we roughly match it to. So um, that's about 150 US dollars a day. Uh, And and people occasionally get a a funny look. And if you think about it, um, we pay people to make public decisions all the time. In fact, with politicians, we actually pay them pretty well. Okay. 
Well, very good. Um, are, are there any? Um, so the Irish example seems like it was a resounding success. Have other governments looked at it and said, "Ooh, we're going to try something like this," or was it met with with um, skepticism? Mm-hmm. Or what's happened now? President Macron has commissioned a number of projects. The president in Germany has as well. Um, we're seeing the OECD publish guidelines. Richard, you'll you'll probably laugh, but it's happening pretty much everywhere except the United States. Your political system does seem to be one of the more arcane and resistant to change, um, which is why it's a pleasure to get an invitation to talk about it. But most governments around the world are looking at this. Uh, The UN Democracy Fund has started to realise that this is a great process to take out because elections alone are not yielding. Essentially, you, you go back a step. Why do we have democracy? There's two reasons in my book. One is there's some decisions which affect all of us, including how to pay for them. And the second one is to have social cohesion. You know, there's a lot of us that want different things uh, and often very opposite things, and we need a way to resolve that. Now, because of the simplicity of voting and, frankly, how easy it is to manipulate a vote, as the Cambridge Analytica experience showed, um, elections uh, votes are pretty simple. Uh, Scare campaigns work tremendously well. As a result, it's easy to derail reform decisions So we need something that's less easy to be derailed while still being robust, something trusted. And that really is the key of why citizens' assemblies and juries are working, is that, you know what we want to see in politics? We want to see people like us. We just want to see some regular folks instead of career politicians, instead of people who are clearly saying things because they're worried about their their pre-selection, their nomination. And we we look at them and think, I don't think even you believe what you're saying. That is a problem we can solve with juries. Uh, the number one thing with people we pick at random is they don't say things uh, just to make us happy. You, you can't get 40 or 50 people to say something they don't believe in. I guarantee you, you can get 40 or 50 people in elected office to say something they don't believe in. What about the um, the identities of the people? Are they shielded until after the decision's made? And if it's very contentious, like abortion, you know, what if someone finds out who is, uh, you know, one of the random people or multiple random people and they attack them or they try to denounce them or, you know, is there any need to protect the deciders? Uh, not in Australia. I don't mean to be flippant, but what we do here is it's absolutely essential the wider community gets a feel for these people from the outset. If you hear that the government's discussing a tough decision and you say, hey, here's a group of people like you, you're likely to trust them and follow them. If you only discover who these people are at the end when there's the decision, if you don't like the decision, then you don't like the people. Now, in practice, this means we ask the jurors and say, hey, we'd like a number of you to appear in the media. Who feels comfortable doing that? As a rule, 80 to 90% of people do. There's always a few people who are shy. That's absolutely fine. What's great is to be able to show a cross-section of people and just give a sense of this person's, you know, a carpenter, this person's a childcare worker, this person's a dentist. You, You get that real sense of, okay, well, they're not a lobbyist. They're not someone from the you know, pick your industry of choice that you don't like. But in terms of being attacked and found, the other dynamic to realise is that if you pick 40 people, they don't know each other. So if you try to corrupt one of them, and we have seen two attempts to um, get to a juror in a political environment, people have established networks. So if someone comes in with new information and pushes a decision, you know, there's a little bit of social element of, well, let's trust him because we've known Bob 20 years. With a jury, it's very, very hard to manipulate it. Um, we get super majority decisions in this environment. 
So we don't set a simple threshold of 50-50. What we're doing is trying to get the group to say, what can you all agree to? Take, that's why it takes so much time. We let them self-write their recommendations. In that environment, there is no just block of votes. You don't just get to Nancy Pelosi, uh, who then says, fantastic, I can move the whole party. Uh, or equally, you don't just get to uh, um, Ted Cruz and say, right, I've got one influential person who can drag all these other votes along. They're a group of people who are all equal. If someone brings something in, then they'll listen, they'll consider. But equally, what we've seen is people are quite sceptical of where did you get that leverage folder of background uh, materials? And and they question engage. So it is actually quite uh, highly corruption proof. Yeah, no, I mean, it sounds a, a heck of a lot better than what we've got going on here. You know, I was thinking about elections and voting and I mean, you know, we, I don't know, six months before an election, we're not getting any information. We're just get, you know, sound bites from politicians. And I, I wouldn't even call it information. I would just call it, I don't know, sound bites to inflame people that inform them of nothing. There's no you real discussion of the, the merits and the issues, the positives and negatives, none of that stuff. And then when there's a total disconnect because once the person gets in power, then all of a sudden now you're shut out and you don't get to, to see anything of the internal workings of the decisions or why or how. And it's just, I don't know, it just doesn't seem like a, it just seems like crap. From my Richard, you, you hit it. You absolutely hit the key problem. Because of voting, anyone running for office, Democrat, Republican, left, right, anywhere, they have no incentive to convene deep discussions because that's, that's not how we vote. We tend to vote driven by hating the other candidate more. That's one of the prime determinants of how you vote. You don't vote for someone. You tend to vote because you actively dislike the other candidate. Now, in that environment, that's why you get sound bites. Voting has more in common with selling soft drink than it does with thinking. You want to have a quick association, a quick memory associated with that. So slogans, sound bites, negative messaging works super well. And that's a, a function of format. It's not because politicians are bad people. It's because they, that we've created a structure. They can see how that structure works and they can respond to it. So to fix it, we're saying, well, let's create a second structure. And all of a sudden you see the incentives are completely different. Within that second structure, there is no election. We get an equal chance to participate. You end up in a room with a whole bunch of different people. And the incentive now is, look, it's not about your individual view. What's hard to find is where the common ground position of the community is. So we will report to your uh, governor, to to a minister, to a leader in government, whatever it is that you can agree on, that you can support with evidence. Now, you see what we've just done to people's incentives there. Now they have an incentive to read, an incentive to question, an incentive to listen to one another. You know, one of the most common things is, this pure impact of we all tend to hang out with people just like ourselves. This is creating a little bit of space in society where you mix with people with a very different level of of wealth, a very different life experience. And that mixing is a good thing to do. And if that mixing results in people standing behind something and saying, on balance, we think this is fair, that's got a great role to play in our democracies and making them a little less uh, agitated. Well, I mean, like you said, in, in Ireland, they convened this and Macron in France has uh, convened a few times. But, you know, how do you know when you're getting so close to home where the politician, the leader is going to be like, oh, no, no, we shouldn't do that. Yeah, it's OK if we do this, but we shouldn't do that. And the underlying reason would be, Ugh, you know, I might be next as 
the president is a prime minister. You know, I, I don't, I don't think any of me or my ilk are coming back if we, uh, if we take this to the point where it governs how elections are done and how politicians get to run their positions. I mean, it seems like maybe if it was allowed, one of the first things would be to convene a, a big citizens assembly and change how, how politics is done, first of all, how voting is done, how all that stuff's done, and reform it that way and then move forward. Believe it or not, that is under active discussion in a number of countries, that specifically where you have a poacher and gamekeeper problem with politicians. So around anything to do with election regulation, should that be passed to a jury of citizens? You, you know, even, even, even in far, Australia, far away Australia, we got a pretty good message that uh, then President Trump wanted to drain the swamp. Can you think of a better way to do it? Um, equally, we now look at President Biden seeking to do something on gun laws. What an amazing thing it could be to, you know, the Congress is not going to get very far doing that. Um, why not start with juries of citizens in a dozen places around the United States and ask them an open question? How do we minimise harm from guns in our society? Uh, you see, it's an open question. You can answer it all sorts of ways. But we need to reset the debate so it's away from people trying to agitate for vote-choosing slogans and away from moneyed interests is probably a good starting point. And if nothing else, it would be interesting. I'd love to know how, how groups of Americans in, uh, you know, around the country, how they would solve the problem if we gave them the best democratic opportunity of their lives. Mm. And that best democratic opportunity, abundant time, you know, people like us working as staff to get their questions answered from the sources that they nominate, giving them the scope to work together and find a common ground position. I think, I think a lot of people would prefer that to what they're seeing on the news today. You could probably reach a more trusted decision. And for elected representatives, they probably want the room to engage more sensibly, not just have to repeat slogans, you know, every time a camera is pointed at them. So the great thing with this, Richard, is it's easy to try. If, if you try it and you don't like it, well, the elected group can simply ignore it. But as we say yeah. people in elected office here, if you try it and it works, look at the problems you can solve. And the, the, the really interesting part is people often ask me, is this pursued more by the left or more by the right? And it's the wrong question. <laughs> what it's mainly pursued by is people who've done around eight years in office and all of us at about that time, you've worked out the limitations to the system what you can't get done because of public opinion, because of donors, because of all the pressures of office, that's the group of people who most wants to talk to you. Uh, people who've been in office 30 years are a little more defensive of the system, so they're a little harder to move. But the vast majority, I would say 70 80% of politicians are really open to this idea in our experience. Uh, and that's not just in Australia, that's in a bunch of countries around the world. Okay. Um, which country do you see as, uh, I don't know, closest to really implementing this on a significant scale for a lot of decisions? Uh, I mean, Scotland, the whole Scottish Parliament is, uh, is pushing ahead. Um, Ireland, uh, Ireland is doing two more projects this year. And in 2023, um, they're running what will be one of the largest citizens' assemblies, essentially asking people, how should we minimise harm from illicit drugs? So putting every drug law on the table and sort of accepting that what we're doing today isn't working, we're stuck in a loop. I think you start to look at across Europe, you see a lot of exemplars. You know, the European Commission has just done an immense project across, uh, I think it was 28 countries, uh, the Conference on the Future of Europe. They did it using this method. We see interest coming from 
I get contacted by overseas governments probably once every two weeks. That's where the level of interest is. And that the last point I'd really encourage people to look at, the OECD have captured this in a publication called The Deliberative Wave. And it is, it's politicians looking at what is a tool that actually helps you prosecute the reasons you got into politics in the first place. And increasingly, it is this deliberative wave, this use of citizens, juries and citizens assemblies that is at the core. And there's materials out there to help. And, you know, it is if we look at all the countries or all the democracies around the world. Yeah, America is probably at the back of the queue. It's probably the toughest to reform because you have the most money in politics and you actually no. have some very strange democratic structures there. What about um, for companies? Have you ever seen a company that runs on sortition? And what does that look like? Um, increasingly, it's used as a customer engagement piece. We don't work on it. We're a research foundation. Essentially, we're looking at how can we make public decision making better. Um, but I have spoken to people over the years who are in you know senior corporate jobs, you know, billion dollar enterprises. And, and they have stopped and said, wow, I should be doing this internally. Uh, in any organizational structures, managers have an incentive to tell you what you want to hear and good news. Wow, I should be sampling across, you know, certain number of people from my warehouse, certain number of people from a factory, certain number of people in management. By sampling, you get a very different result because you change the incentives. Okay. I don't know. Are there any big projects in the works that you're really excited about or new referendums or new uh, case studies that are coming up that people could look at and maybe keep tabs on? Uh, I mean, Richard, in my job, it's the reason politicians talk to me is I'm discreet. So they open up all sorts of conversations. So I tend not to forecast what uh, might be coming around the corner. But anyone who's interested, I would always look up Ireland Citizens Assembly. As I mentioned, they've got two happening now a massive one happening in 2023. Uh, I would expect that um, you'll see more out of President Macron. You'll definitely see more out of Germany. And and with that, I'm, I'm obviously parochial and hoping that we see something very large out of Australia. But it's what we have is absolutely there's still a mission to show politicians this is complementary. This helps you actually do your job better. Um, but the mission is always making people aware of it and honestly, getting them to not think it's a lunatic idea. When I say we're going to use random selection, I know there's a chunk of us who are probably picturing, you know, some of the strange people we might see on the train this morning. But the, the core of it is, if you look at it, 95% of the population does okay. You know, we, we figure out our lives, we have somewhere to live, we keep a job, all that sort of stuff. The population is capable if we show them respect and give them a great democratic opportunity. And I think for especially for, for people in the, in the United States who are probably having an above average frustration with their democracy, it's a great chance to say, could you try this? You know, you're not asking them to prosecute a massive reform. You're asking them to try something once. If it doesn't work, then you've wasted a little bit of money. But if it does work, can you imagine if can you imagine getting home and not hating turning on the news? You know, that's that's the promise. That's that's the hope in the future. It's that chance to make a trusted decision and for us to sit at home and say, well, that's fair enough. That looks pretty good. Let's go with that. And that's a long way from where we're at today with our purely electoral representative democracies. No, it sounds a lot better. I mean, I would care a lot more. I, I think, well, again, I'm, I'm speaking for a lot of people, but I, I, I think this is probably pretty common. Like, I feel like I have no power, no influence, no control, no say over anything that goes on, for instance, in the U.S. So what's the point? All I do feel is that, you know, these, here's what I feel like. 
I feel like I live in like you know the Smurfs from years ago, those tiny little blue guys. Oh yeah. <laughs> I feel like we live in Smurf Village, and there's these giants that are coming around, stomping on houses and killing people and falling on people and killing them, and we can't get rid of them, and we have to pay attention to them. But all they do is destroy shit. That's our government and our Congress and all that stuff. It just like I don't know. They're just there making noise and causing problems, and we just have no say in what goes on. But we have to deal with them. So it's it's incredibly frustrating. So I'd rather something like this. At least there's a chance of feeling like what you have to say counts, or people that you think are are trusted. You know, again, oh, that person runs a beauty salon. This one is a doctor. This one, uh, you know, cleans houses. This one's black. This one's white. This one's female. This one, you know, I would I would feel a lot better if there was a big group of people like that because I would think, okay, you know, uh, actual people are really voting on this stuff, and it's not just some politicians that don't care. You know, the the in your Gargamel scenario, Richard, in your Gargamel scenario, this is often the aha. What is the primary job of someone in Congress? It's to get reelected. Right. Yeah. What, is the, what is the primary job of someone I pick on a jury? It's to solve the problem that's put in front of them. And that's a really important difference in motivation. And again, if, if you or I depend on a popularity contest every couple of years to decide if we kept our jobs, mm-hmm. we probably do things differently too. We have made this popularity contest of elections so important and so critical that it actually impairs the judgment of those decision makers to make decisions. So you see how that your, your Gargamel problem is one of incentives. Their incentive is to stomp on the village because they want to run a campaign, being able to say, I stomped on the most villages, vote for Gargamel. Um, right. you, you win or the least. That's it. So it's about incentives. Now, one thing we haven't covered today is we often think, oh, yeah, but there's some big important decisions, you know, lots of money, lots of impact. How can we trust everyday people? Um, there's two things I'd love you to sort of think about. One is politicians frequently have a background of studying law, coming through to work in a uh, another politician's office, um, working on campaigns. My point is they never actually have a day job. You know, that, that's it's increasingly a professionalised career span. We trust them because we see them on TV a lot. But if you strip it back, their cap- capacity for decision-making probably isn't a lot different to most of us, to any other people. Well, I don't think anyone trusts them. I think that's that's assumed. And I think that, again, I just think that people have to put up with it. I don't think they trust any of them. And I think it's, like you said earlier, it's the choice of the lesser of two evils, but both suck. That's what it seems yeah, like we, lately. Richard, I'm not sure what your um, capacity is for censoring on this port podcast, but we just had an election in, in Australia three weeks ago. And they, um, they, they interview voters coming out of the booths. And they got this guy and he was sort of, you know, just a really easygoing looking bloke. And they said, so how did you make your choice today? And he shrugged and looked at the camera and he just said, well, it's the lesser of two dickheads really, isn't it? Yep. yep. That's, I, I, I'm not saying I like the person I voted for, but look at the choice we were given. We, we can move right. beyond the choice. Yeah, no, I, I, I would love for this to happen. And who knows if even uh, there really are a lot of people supposedly saying they don't trust random people. That could all be BS by the people in power that want to keep in power. You know, so I, I, don't, I, I see this system as, uh, you know, again, as long as it was uh, as transparent as possible and people really knew how are people selected? How do we deal with this? How do we deal with that? You know, how do we prevent corruption? Why does this have a chance of working? What are the issues? What is the counterplay back and forth? Um, I think this would be an infinitely better system. 
And you've hit it. I mean, Richard, if, if I say, people say, can you really run random selection? I say, look at Powerball. No one's managed to cheat Powerball yet because there's the physics is impossible with all those little balls bouncing around. Yeah. Well, all you've got to do is turn that into little number strings that belong in a phone number, a social security number, anything like that. And I don't think real. I think realistically go, well, no, there's no way they've tricked that up. Yeah, it's less likely, at least. I mean, no system is totally bulletproof, but you can get a heck of a lot better. It's like preventing your car being stolen. You can put the club on it, an alarm in it, put it under the street light, have a security guard watch it. You know, sure, someone can steal it, but it's much harder now and much less likely. And that's far better than doing nothing. And with democratic process, I, I agree with you. Never make a claim that something can't be corrupted or broken. The real test is if it is corrupted or broken, can it be hidden? Now, that's that's a, that second test, in my view, is much more important. Absolutely, we've seen attempts um, to take down our recruitment system. You will laugh that we have done topics on a fairly high degree of controversy, things like nuclear waste facilities, and it was a topic on cars and bikes must share the road that had the most systematic attempt to defraud our recruitment system. So uh, you never know where controversy may lie. Well, as a, you know, I don't want to make you take too much time, but was, was there anything curious or interesting about the way in which, you know, people try to thwart the system? Did you uh, learn anything no, it, from it that was interesting? No, it tends to be fairly brute force because people don't understand the method. So if you think about simply, Richard, if I do a random sample of addresses and we post out an invitation to them, uh, people tend to register from their own address. So you can match the two things together there's relatively simple ways to ensure that there was no passing around of invitations. You know, occasionally people will get one at their work address and register at their home address. But um, we tend to just ring people up. If we pick one and it doesn't have an address match, my favorite memory in this job was ringing someone up. And I said, look, you've been picked, but um, the address doesn't match. Can you tell me where you got it? He said, yeah, it went to my mother's house. I went, oh, good. What's the address? And he said, I don't know. So on that instance, we judged that that was fraudulent. Um, People are not expecting a phone call out of the blue. They're not expecting having to construct a story around that. So, um, you know, that's it's relatively easy to detect is is the point here, whether or not an address, uh, an invitation's gone to someone. But beyond Mm. that, only exclusions we have are for people in paid political office. Uh, Aside from that, let's give the broadest possible opportunity to people. Yeah. And I mean, a dead person can vote. We've seen that, but uh, it'd be much harder for a dead person to be on a committee and give their opinion of what's going on. You know, so. And, and yet I'd save on catering. Well, excellent. This has been a really cool call. Very interesting. Um, how can people find out more and how could they try to maybe, you know, give a little bit of a, a kick or an impetus to their, their officials, you know, local, uh, city, state, federal, whatever it is to uh, consider these things, maybe implement them? Sure thing, Richard. For, for us, we run a, a really simple explainer at changepolitics.org.au. Now, in America, there's a fabulous organisation called Of By Four. So if you just Google join Of By Four, uh, I think it's got a .us script. That's a really good way to, again, get a basic understanding. Um, You actually mentioned what's the best thing people could do to make it happen is actually just start talking about it. Put it out there on social media. Start to contact your politicians and say, what do you think? And because it's a a topic about democracy, we find that they're much happier to engage on it than they are about, you know, a a real hard policy topic. Um, Letting politicians know you're interested in it is half the battle. So, yeah, if people want to take a look at that changepolitics.org.au, 
at joinofby4.us and and then just start a conversation. You know, send a tweet, drop an email through to your politician. You know, ask them what they think. Ask them if they take a look. And um, for the really keen, for those who really want to get into it, take a look at the OECD Deliberative Wave or the UN Democracy Fund uh, Handbook on Democracy Beyond Elections. They're the two kind of cornerstone publications starting to really explain in a little more detail. But um, if I can give one final recommendation for those who are a bit curious, there's sure. one great book you should read on it, Against Elections by David Van Raybrook. It's short, it's punchy, it's fun. You can read it in an afternoon at the beach. Uh, but that is the number one book you want to buy that will um, give you a few new ideas and quite a surprise. Okay. Well, very good. Well, thanks so much for coming. It's been a great call. And like I said, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Richard. Uh, I can't wait to see the response. Excellent. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.